0: Wow, that was something, wasn't it? In moments of very high drama and surprise, our immediate reactions may say a lot more about us than our carefully considered responses. The story I'm about to tell you is sad, but all too true from his disheveled appearance and the smell of alcohol in his breath it was obvious that the man who turned up in the middle of our fellowship meal was much the worse for wear he'd had a skinful he was also hungry and it was a simple matter to share our food with him he cleared his plate speedily and he needed no persuading when we offered him second helpings and no doubt emboldened by the hospitality he'd received from us, he informed us then that he was homeless and needed a bed for the night. And that too was easily solved. And with the assistance of a willing colleague, I helped him into the back seat of the car. I got into the front and drove the mile or so to the nearby hostel. I was just beginning to tell myself that I'd done an excellent job of helping a weaker brother in his time of need. And I was overcoming my feeling of irritation at having my evening interrupted when it all went wrong. As we pulled up beside the hostel, our passenger suddenly said in a strangely muffled voice, I think I'm going to be sick. (laughs) Unknown to me and quite unsuspected by me, at some time in the past, God had given this man the gift of predictive prophecy. And not the kind of prophecy that you wait for years or centuries until it's fulfilled. For verily it came to pass that immediately following his words the contents of his stomach were deposited all over my head. (laughs) I know there are moments when a warm glow is a pleasant thing. But this was definitely not one of them. His next utterance was one of abject apology. I only just made out the words, it gets worse from here on in, because the aforementioned emission was all over my head and there were pieces in my ear. <laughs> I'm only telling you the truth. Interesting thing, I, I couldn't recall us having diced carrot for dinner. <laughs> but they were there. I'm sorry, I didn't put that in my notes, but I dared myself to say it. (laughs) However, removing the pieces from my ear, whatever they were, I heard myself shout very loudly, shut up! Just sit still and shut up. Well, in all honesty, I think I may have given voice to some stronger language even perhaps a mild profanity, but if I could remember it, I wouldn't dare utter it from a spring harvest platform. (laughs) I was furious, and the anger that erupted from me was every bit as real and perhaps even more unpleasant than the substance that had spilled out of my passenger. Do you see what I mean? That in moments of high drama, and surprise, our reactions actually tell us a great deal about ourselves. And Peter's reaction at the transfiguration revealed a great deal about him. When, in response to this dramatic moment, when Jesus was transfigured, transformed, and appeared in his heavenly form, Peter blurts out the kind of thing that Peter blurts out. But I think you will understand it a little better if if we set it in context. Because just one week before the transfiguration, a conversation of of the deepest, most profound significance had taken place in response to a question that Jesus had posed, which was a question of the most far-reaching importance. You may recall that Against the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, a town that had once been called Panius because of its links with the Greek god Pan and the pagan rituals that had taken place there. A town which had been rebuilt by Herod Philip, who named it after himself and after Tiberius Caesar, hence Caesarea Philippi. Against these trappings of pagan religion and imperial Rome, Jesus, God incarnate, had looked the disciples in the eye and had asked them, what are people saying about me? And of course, you know, the answers came back. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some one of the prophets. And then came what must have been one of the most dramatic moments in the three years the disciples spent in the presence of Jesus. What about you? Who do you say that I am? The other disciples sat there scarcely daring to draw breath. When Peter, looking straight back at Jesus, makes the foundational confession of the Christian church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A dramatic foundational moment. The confession of faith that we all make. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And countless sermons have been preached on it, and rightly so. But notice this. It seems to me to be not without significance that Jesus surprisingly charges them to tell no one. Peter's confession may be foundational, but his comprehension of all that it means is definitely flawed. He's absolutely right about Jesus being the Messiah, but absolutely wrong about the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. To Peter... Jesus was going to be a contradiction in terms, a meek Messiah, a suffering Savior, a crucified King. And Jesus has to spell it out that this will be a crucified Messiah. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and must be killed and on the third day will rise again. But it isn't only Peter's understanding of his confession of faith that is inadequate. It's also his apprehension of the cost of following Jesus that is sadly askew. So Jesus goes a little further. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to, lose it, to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. There's a lesson that I want to spell out at this point, And it's this. We must declare our faith with a combination of absolute certainty. And utter humility. Absolute certainty in the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the lost, and the only ultimate hope for a lost world. But also with humility, because like Peter, our understanding of the gospel... Of Jesus is always partial and incomplete and our expression and embodiment of the gospel is always flawed and marred by our sinfulness. In the 2,000 years of the history of the body of Christ on earth, in the great procession of saints and devout, devoted followers of Jesus, In the long litany of influential movements which have enriched and renewed the church of Jesus Christ across the centuries, not one has perfectly articulated the faith. And not one has perfectly lived out the gospel. And make no mistake about it, neither you, nor I, nor our particular denomination or church stream is any exception to that pattern. None of us perfectly understand or embody the gospel. So thank God that he works in and through us as individual disciples. Thank God that he works in and through and with our churches. But thank him most of all because far more often than we realize it, he works in spite of us. And in the days that followed that great confession of faith, Peter and the other disciples must have reflected on that conversation, turning it over in their minds, rehearsing it, trying to work out what it all meant. And then just one short week after Peter's confession comes an event that is at one and the same time mystical, mysterious, miraculous. The conversation at Caesarea Philippi had centred around Peter's recognition of Jesus as the divine son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one. The transfiguration is about God's revelation, a dramatic, unforgettable confirmation of the truth of that previous conversation. What happened was so beautifully and tellingly depicted before us. Jesus takes Peter and John and James and goes up into a mountain to pray. And as he's praying there, the appearance of his face has changed and his clothes become bright as a flash of lightning. And then Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they speak about his departure. And Peter and James and John who had been very sleepy begin to wake up and stare and see this scene of heavenly wonder and Peter again blurts out, so why don't we build three booths, make a monument to you. It's a moment of transformation as Jesus is transfigured from his earthly to his heavenly form. It's a moment of confirmation as to who Jesus really is as Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, bear witness to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it's a moment of anticipation of the way that Jesus must take as Moses and Elijah talk with him about his departure. The Greek word used there is his exodus, the road that he must take to bring deliverance and freedom. And James and John, it would seem, are understandably and justifiably dumbstruck. But not Peter. Peter always speaks and acts from the gut. And he responds instinctively Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's build three booths. And who knows, in time we'll replace them with a temple. Or better still, what about a Disney-style theme park? <laughs> I can see it. Transfiguration Land, a day out for the entire family. Ride the cable car up Moses Mountain. Stroll through the Elijah Exhibition. Do battle with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. And see the fire fall from heaven as we use the latest technology. Drop the kids at Peter's play area while you take it easy at the Miracle Bistro and watch in amazement as water becomes a foaming cappuccino before your very eyes. <laughs> and don't forget to call it the souvenir outlet on your way home for a lasting memento of your visit. A three-quarter life-size transfigured Jesus in dazzling white robes, batteries not included. <laughs> no wonder the good Dr. Luke says of Peter... He did not know what he was saying. Of course, I'm stretching the point. Of course, I'm being ridiculous, but not that ridiculous. It's what happens. God gives us a gift of a moment of confirmation, a privileged, wonderful insight into his heart, a special blessing to be treasured. And what do we want to do with it? We want to hold on to it. We want to make it ours. We want to turn it into a dogma that we can force on everybody else. We construct a vast cathedral or put up a humble mission hall and imagine that we have captured the very essence of the gospel. It happens so easily to individual Christians, it happens so easy to local churches, and it happens especially easily to denominations and church streams. Thank God for the prophets who can see what's happening as we try to capture the gospel and contain it and lock it up. And the prophets are not always in the places we would expect them to be. Bono of U2 says this, I think I know what God is. God is love, and as much as I respond in allowing myself to be transformed by that love and acting in that love, that's my religion. Religion, adds Bono, can be the enemy of God. It's often what happens when God, like Elvis, has left the building. A list of instructions where once there was conviction. Dogma where once people just did it. A congregation led by a man where once they were led by the Holy Spirit. Discipline replacing discipleship. That's what happens when we think we've constructed a building or a dogma or a way of life that is the gospel. And what about Nick Hornby? I think sometimes Nick Hornby speaks like a prophet. If you don't know, Nick Hornby is a novelist. And he's written a superb novel, How to Be Good. It's about a doctor, Katie Carr. And the novel begins as as she's at a medical conference, a couple of hundred miles away from home, commits an act of adultery, and the rest of the book is her struggle to be good. And then one Sunday morning, out of the blue, she cannot imagine how the thought even occurred to her. She decides that maybe the pursuit of goodness could find something in church. Here's Nick Hornby, talking through the voice of Katie Carr. We wondered where we would find a church, but churches are like betting shops. There's always one around the corner, and you never notice them if you don't use them. Uh, By the way, apologies to any Anglicans in the congregation. (laughs) What happens next could be said of churches all across the denominational spectrum. Katie Carr goes on. We strike it lucky almost immediately. Molly spots a few ancient parishioners hobbling into St. Stephen's a couple of streets away. And we park the car right outside. If you are the kind of person whose choice of entertainment is governed by ease of parking, then I thoroughly recommend Anglican Sunday services. (laughs) You can arrive at 5 to 10 for a 10 o'clock service and you're away by two minutes past 11. Anyone who's had to wait for an hour in the Wembley car park after a Spice Girls concert may find this attractive. The sparsity of the congregation and its apparent lack of interest in anything or anyone allows us to sit towards the back and pretend that we have nothing to do with anyone or anybody. Molly is, of course, Molly is her daughter, by the way. Molly is, of course, the youngest person in the pews on this side of the church. But I'm probably the second youngest by 10 or 15 years. Although with a couple of them, it's hard to tell. Time has not, it is fair to say, been kind to some of these people. We sing a hymn and then there is a reading and then there are the notices. They're having a bring and buy sale. And the reason that there is no choir this week is that it's been invited to join forces with another choir to do something else somewhere else. I start to drift off. I've never been to an ordinary church service before. I've been to weddings, funerals, christenings, carol services, and even harvest festivals. But I've never been to a bog-standard, nobody-there Sunday service. It all feels, says Katie Carr in Nick Hornby's novel, it all feels a long way from God, No nearer than the bring and buy sale would be. It feels sad, exhausted, defeated. This may have been God's house once. You want to tell the handful of people here, but he's clearly moved, shut up shop, gone to a place where there is more of a demand for that sort of thing. It feels sad, exhausted. This may have been God's house once, but he's clearly moved. Okay, that's funny, and it's maybe a little unfair. It's also tragic, and it's not entirely true. But there's enough truth there to force us to face the fact that our human constructions, whether they are the denominations to which we are linked, the dogmas to which we give assent, the duties to which we give our efforts, or the buildings we construct, those things are not identical with the gospel. In fact, they can become substitutes for the gospel. And they can continue long after Elvis has left the building. Long after God has departed. And that's why Peter's suggestion of building three booths was such an inappropriate suggestion. But it leaves us with one question to answer. As we reiterate the great confession of faith in which the church is founded, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord of all, that Jesus is Savior of the world, that Jesus is our coming King. And as we rejoice in those moments when God reveals his heart in wonderful and miraculous ways, how do we remain true to the gospel? How do we make sure that we really are the holy apostolic people of God in a world that desperately needs us? (coughs) Oddly, paradoxically, frighteningly, encouragingly, the answer is in the verses that immediately follow the story of the transfiguration. The answer is in what happens when the disciples come down from the mountain. It's like you're watching the story of the church in just a few verses. To be honest, what we find is that the great confession that Peter made and the great confirmation that God granted on the Mount of Transfiguration is followed by a scene of glorious confusion. They come down from the mountain and what do they find? There is a boy possessed with an evil spirit and the disciples are absolutely unable to help because of their lack of spiritual power. There's an argument going on between the disciples as to who would be the greatest. Sheer naked ambition amongst the people of God. There's some powerful opposition when they try to enter a Samaritan village. And it's made clear that they are not welcome. And worse than the actions of the Samaritans is the reaction of the disciples who want to call down fire from heaven and destroy the village. And then there's a procession of people who say that they want to follow Jesus, but who turn back very quickly because the cost is too great. And we recognize it. We live in that kind of a world We worship and serve in that kind of a church, and there's no getting out of it, but that's where we need to be. It would be really great, would it not, to stay at spring harvest, to worship every evening with four or five thousand people in the big top, to experience the kind of worship and drama that we've experienced this evening. And some of us, particularly, and all of us to a great extent, what we've got to do is go back to a messy church in a messy world. We've got to go back to the confusion of an imperfect, flawed church seeking to bring the gospel to a sin sick world. But that's where the church needs to be. A holy church needs to be in the world. And there is one thing and one thing only that makes that ministry both productive and possible. You've guessed it, haven't you? In all this mess and confusion, they're in the company of Jesus They, the disciples, and we, lack the spiritual power to deal with demonic forces. But Jesus can do it. They, the disciples, and we, still argue about greatness and still have our personal agendas. But Jesus embodies humility and service. They, the disciples, and we face opposition and some things want to react in kind, but Jesus responds with gentleness and grace. They, the disciples, and we watch sadly as would-be disciples turn back, but Jesus continues to call men and women to a service. What will distinguish us and make us effective as the church in the 21st century will not be our buildings or our historical traditions or our doctrinal statements or our big celebrations like Spring Harvest. They'll all have their place. What will distinguish us? Indeed, be honest, the only thing that will save the church of Jesus Christ in this land from near extinction will be that we are the people of God who live constantly and intimately in the company of Jesus Christ and who walk through the world by his grace and in his power. Jesus' invitation to come and follow was made to 12 very imperfect men who failed him and ran away at his hour of greatest need. We must allow God to be God as we make the same invitation today to equally imperfect people, irrespective of their social standing, their racial or ethnic origins, their sexual orientation, their past failures, or their present moral and spiritual shortcomings. Jesus himself said that his purpose in coming to earth was not to call the righteous but to be the friend of all kinds of sinners. All kinds of sinners. Those within the boundary of the church and those still outside it. And in living out that purpose, he demonstrated his father's heart, spending his days and giving his life for the sake of others without distinction. If we are genuinely to live for others, it will mean nothing less than the life of Christ lived over again in each of us and in all our churches. It will probably mean that just about everything we hold dear will change radically and forever. It will certainly cost us everything. But it will be the best bargain we ever made. I end with a story. A story I told the other day in our seminar. But I love the story because it's a great story. And it's a story about the greatest music that God ever gave to this world. 1928, spring day. Tenor saxophone player Bud Freeman was walking through the south side of Chicago in the company of a fellow musician. And as they turned the corner, they came upon a bunch of street musicians, struggling their way through a piece of music that they'd heard on a record that had recently been issued. A piece of music with the glorious title, "Strutting With Some Barbecue. They stood and listened for a while to the music, which was not very well played. And at the end, they applauded politely, and Bud Freeman's companion moved over to the trumpet player and not to embarrass the man said very quietly in his ear you're playing that too slow. The trumpet player was a little offended and said what do you know about it? Well said Bud Freeman's companion I'm Louis Armstrong and that's my chorus you're playing. The great Louis Armstrong stood next to him and played the chorus a couple of times, shook hands with the man and moved on. The next day, Bud Freeman and Louis Armstrong are walking through the same part of town and come upon the same group of street musicians playing the same tune, strapping with some barbecue, but only ever so slightly better. But there was one wonderful big difference. Because in front of the little tin collecting Box, they had put a handwritten notice which bore the words pupils of Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Sometimes we make such a mess of the music of the gospel we're not very good at it. But if we could walk through this world And in every street where we live, and in every street corner, and in every place of work, and in every school and college in this country, people looked at us and said, they're still learning, but they're pupils of Jesus Christ. What a church we could be. What a church we could be. Father God, forgive us. For when we've imagined that our puny minds and our puny, pathetic human constructions can contain the gospel, we ask simply that by your grace you will burst through them all like a great tsunami with a tide of generous extravagant grace sweeping through our land. And we ask you that we have no greater glory than that we are your pupils in your school of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.